Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwan. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat, I covered some of this material. So if you listen to that, we're recovering it. But I think we need to reiterate it so that we understand these relationships. And uh, especially since we're living in a world that's under a curse, then sometimes our, our view of going back to the beginning, like Yeshua said, in the beginning, it was not so. He wanted us to, to begin to learn of him and the word going back to the beginning when things were in a state of perfection. And some, I think he's telling us, sometimes you're going to have to break out of the cursed reality you live in in order to engage the heavenly reality that is your goal. So that if, if you're going to start living a resurrected life, a transformed life, a restored life, then don't be content to live under the conditions of the curse. Uh, you're, you're going to be part of that solution of restoration. You're going to be a partner with him. Uh, and you have to prepare the way. You were not told to just passively sit here and wait for Yeshua to come and fix everything. We're told to prepare the way as much as we can. And, and that usually means changing our hearts first and then changing the things we do second. And so reforming or transforming, I don't know if we're reforming or transforming, but changing the way that we even look at human relationships that we have endured in a cursed world and saying, let's look at those relationships again. Let's, like Yeshua said, let's go back to the beginning, because not only will that show you the, the perfection that was intended upon this earth, it will give us a glimpse into those realities of the parables of human relationships. So that's that's kind of where we're bringing this back in with chapter 3, verses 9, 10, and 11. Um with the daughters of Jerusalem and the daughters of Zion, who have been part of beautifying the Mishkan, basically, beautifying the heavenly chariot that the Holy One rides in. Um, he rides in his chariot on the heavens, but in us, we become his chariot on this earth, and he rides upon the earth. His presence abides in us. And in that sense, he also rides in the earth and what our eyes see, what our hands do, where our feet take us, what our heart plans, in a sense, because we carry his spirit within us, we're taking him to the places over which he is the king. He is the king over those places. Where would you take the king? If you were carrying his chariot today, okay, let's just say, let's say Yeshua got into your car today. If, if so, or somehow that, that glorious presence that was on Mount Sinai, if somehow you could compact that into something big enough to fit in your car, where would you take that presence? If it was ride along day, if it was bring the Holy One to work day, <laughs> where would we take him? How would he see our world using our eyes, using our feet, using our hands? That's, that's a pretty good question. Because sometimes we feel like we're out here by ourselves. Sin, we're not. His presence abides in us. Uh, so these are our working texts out of chapter three. Um, again, the the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding, the the day of the joy of his heart. So we've got the daughter, we've got the mother relationship that we've looked at 
previously. And then, again, knowing that we're reading about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, we're also reading about the temple, its more permanent form uh, in terms of some of the decoration, but the movability aspect is, is what we're looking at right now because it's designed after the heavenly chariot. And we know this because of the encampments and the banners of the encampments around the Mishkan with the four living creatures. And so from last week, we saw that the, the canopy that's made from the wood of Lebanon, Lebanon representing the temple itself, because the bones of the temple were made of the, the cedars of Lebanon. But the canopy, it says, is God's celestial throne of glory. And this significance alludes to the temple that King Solomon made for the divine presence. He's creating a vehicle for the divine presence. And then we read that this structure moving from the Mishkan to the temple, the idea is that we're creating a chariot, not the chariot like we're used to seeing, but a movable vehicle for his presence. And Deuteronomy 33, 26 is, is used as a text. It says, he rides Rokev upon the heavens as your help, which links it to the Merkav or the seat that the daughters of Jerusalem lovingly inlaid. And of, of course, it would have to do with the, the craftsmanship, not just of the Mishkan itself, but it, you know, the Holy of Holies and, and the, the, the filigree. There was a lot of filigree or inscript, inscribing work that was done. And interesting too, at this point, even the men become daughters. Sometimes women are sons and sometimes men are daughters. Again, that's why you can't take family relationships literally in every case. Sometimes you should read the context. Sometimes you shouldn't. You should be reading it as a relationship parable. So he wants to come help us. And then um, he wants to ride this chariot. How can he help the earth? It's going to go back to what was Israel's job? What were they chosen and called to do? They were chosen to be a vehicle on this earth, reflecting the chariot with the four living creatures in the heavenlies. And that's where we looked at the idea of Jerusalem above, where Yeshua says he goes to prepare a place for us. And we saw the, the, the play on words there. Because remember, Makom is the place, Hamakom is the place, but Makon is also a place, but it means something that's set up and prepared and even has the sense of preparing a feast. So we saw that in John 14, 2 through 6, where Yeshua says, in my father's house are many rooms. If he's speaking Hebrew, it would be Makomim. If that were not so, I would have told you because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Right there, we've got to prepare Makon. Uh, a place, Makom. So he's saying, I'm going to create space. I'm going to do some additional preparation because there's going to be more people coming in. I'm going to, I'm going to expand this realm to accommodate those that you're going to bring in. He says, so that where I am, there you also will be. And you know the way where I'm going because they've always known the way where he was going. He is the way, the truth, the life. If they can bring the nations to the Father through Yeshua, then there will there will be more accommodation, more space needed in this heavenly realm. And it can flex. We've seen that before. Heavenly realms can flex. They're not bound by space and time like we are here. Okay, so now let's get in to today's lesson. And remember, it has to do with the reflection of 
But we prepare here, same way Yeshua has gone to prepare a place for us. We also have to prepare the way here because the blessings flow from the heavenly Jerusalem, from the heavenly Holy of Holies. And then when the Holy of Holies below it on this earth comes into alignment, obedience, purity, and so forth, then it releases. It's just like opening up the spigot where the heavenly blessings can do more than just trickle around. You know, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And believe it or not, we are the we are the way blessings go into the earth right now. Wasn't that the promise to Abraham? The only way that I know of that the earth is going to be blessed right now is for these little temples of the Holy Spirit to release it. And the only way you're going to open up the spigot of blessing into the earth is to walk in purity and obedience, to to keep your temple, to keep your vessel. That's a big responsibility. And that's why there needs to be more of us. We need to go evangelize so that more blessings can flow through us into the earth. Right. And so through Yeshua's sacrifice, as he's going to prepare the place above, he's offering us protection from death, from that realm of uncleanness. And he's preparing the way that this marriage of the two realms can once again take place. And that's why we have to be careful about when we're reading about human relationships, we don't over literalize it because we would tend to think of it flipped around like, okay, we're the bride down here preparing a temple and then the husband would be up above. So why is the one up above descending like a bride prepared for her husband? I think there's lots of explanations for that. But one of those would be that that relationship is not to be seen in a literal way, that we're to see it more as a unity of two realms that can properly take place once again. And again, the the rationale for that, they, the rabbis point back to Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2, about how the, the mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown. So we've, we've got that little hint there that, yes, the birthplace of the world was Jerusalem. It was Zion. And then as we go to Revelation 21, we can see the restoration of this, the place from which he called forth the creation, Zion, you now see it restored. He says, I saw a new heaven, new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away or they departed is more, more precise. And it says, there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, this is what Yeshua said he was going to do. I'm going to go to go prepare a place. Well, what is the place? Hamakom is Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, more specifically. So the preparation aspect of what Yeshua is telling us is really important, that in the same way that we're preparing the way for him, here he is preparing space for us there, so that when these two realms merge, we'll be perfectly at home, and there'll be plenty of room for us, because we know there's certain things that will not be permitted in that city. There will be abominations, those sorts of things. They won't be permitted into the holy city. So we're preparing here until the time that the temple descends. It's our responsibility to be temples of blessing out in the nations of our exiles. Exile. All right. So kind of pulling together last week's Torah portion and this Torah portion, Bayetzeh, which comes from letzet to go out, and then vayishlach, which means and sent. You got two ways of going out. 
One, you go out kind of on your own, and the other one, somebody sends you out. But remember, our verse in the Song of Songs says, go out, you daughters of Zion, and look. Go out and look. And you can see the, the language there, Sena. And it comes from let's say. And then the, the specific verb that goes with it to look comes from uh, ra'ah. You can see there the, the feminine form, urena benot, which is going to be daughters. Now look at the, the similar language in the Torah portion. And then remember, this follows after Jacob not performing his vow. It says, now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Yaakov, went out to see, right? Same verb. It's not visit. Visit is levaker. If you want to say to see, it's lirot. It's the same verb as go out, you daughters of Zion, and look. See that she wanted to see the daughters of the land. And that's when we, we have a problem because that's when Shechem notices her. When she goes out to see the daughters of the land, um, she's vulnerable. And she's defiled in, in, a, in one way. She's actually defiled two different ways. The, the second one, much more heinous than the first way, which is apparently why Shimon and Levi with Shechem and Chamor, they did more than just put them to the sword. It says they put them to the blade of the sword. So it almost sounds as if that second violation that Shechem did to Dina was repaid in some like manner, which... We don't need to discuss, but again, Shechem and Hamor, they gave us, they tipped us off when they changed the narrative. Because with Yaakov and with uh, his sons, Genesis 34, 8 says, Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage and intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves so you will live with us. And the land shall be open to you, live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your sight, and I will give whatever you tell me. Demand of me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give whatever you tell me. But give me the girl in marriage. He's obviously gone from total beast to being in love and being willing to do whatever it takes to show repentance, except apparently give the girl back. And, and scripture calls her a girl. Uh, she must have been very young when this happened. And we're going to talk about the history, this predatory history between the males and the females after the curse enters the world. But notice one thing about Dina. It's especially women. We're left scratching our heads over this one because she, it feels as though she is simply being acted upon. What little bit we see of her, she's just being acted upon by the males in her life. Where's anything redeeming in her life? Where is there any hope but there's something that, that's not really stated in here, but it's implied. And that is that Dina must have been a very strong, positive, spiritual influence. Because if we compare this to the story of Tamar, remember when, when David's son raped his sister Tamar? And then her full brother Absalom takes her into his house, and he avenges her, not her father, not David, but Absalom, which, of course, led to a lot of trouble for David, too. It tells you that maybe Yaakov and David should have stepped up a little sooner. They may have had the authority, but if you have it, sometimes you need to use it. 
there has to be justice within the family, you might have an uprising like a Shimon and Levi. You might have an uprising like an Absalom, where there's a vacuum of justice or a delay of justice. Often things tend to blow up. Now, the hint we get is that he's gone from total beast, like I said, to wanting to marry the girl. And he says, I'll do anything. I'll make it right. I will do anything to make this right. Just let me have her. So there's been some sort of a heart change. Imagine how strong a woman, girl, she would have to have been spiritually to bring about this change in his heart so quickly. That's incredible. And there's also a midrash that says the reason Dina doesn't, it wasn't presented to Esau that we saw in a previous tour portion is because Jacob had pretty much hidden her. He put her in a box or something. So Esau wouldn't see her and want to take her as a wife. Um, and the rabbis say she, she was strong enough spiritually. She might have turned Esau around. That's Midrash. We don't know if it's true or not, but that was the first time it, it made me think of Dean in a different way. How strong a woman would she have been? To have had the ability, maybe by marrying Esau, to bring him to repentance, to turn him away from being the wild beast. How strong was she when she, you know, interacted with Shechem that he turns and says, I'll do anything. I'll even be circumcised. He was probably the one person in the entire story who was sincere about the circumcision question. He was willing to be circumcised. The others, they just wanted the trade. And then we saw, again, um, the difference between, or the contronym of giving and marriage. It can be a positive thing, like it's, it's an agreement that's settled upon, or simply using the woman as an object of trade, of economics, or taking. Um, taking can mean, yes, positive sense. I embrace this woman. I take obligation for her well-being. I will nourish her. I will cherish her. I will fulfill, you know, every condition of my covenant with her. Or taking can be just snatching her up. I see her. I want her. I take her. And I do whatever I want with her. Contronym. Uh, and so in their reply, we see something interesting. When Shimon and Levi are answering, and giving the condition of circumcision, they put it in that, you know what? If we see one of your daughters, we're going to take her in a negative sense. But we'll just give you ours. Like, if we come to an agreement, but they say, if you won't agree to this, they say, we will take our daughter and go. We'll take our daughter and go. So all of a sudden, she's gone from being a sister to a daughter. And it, I almost wonder if that was a dig at Jacob. Like, Dad, this is your daughter. She's our sister, but she's your daughter. And if you're not going to be a father in this situation, then she'll become our daughter. We will take the obligation for her because she's flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. But then last week we saw in Genesis 34, 20 through 23, when uh, Hamor gets back to Shechem, he reframes the total. He just completely flips it. And that's when we know the, the object here is... Um, assimilation. It's a Hanukkah story. They just say, hey, we're going to give our daughters, which means only the ones that we agree to give to them. And then we'll take theirs. The ones we see of theirs we like, we'll just take them. 
and we've got a, a completely negative application every step of the way here. We see the women being treated as properties for economic gain. And then they say, the, the, what was the ultimate motive? To live with us, to become one people. Will their livestock and their property, all their animals not be ours? Let's just consent to them and they will live with us. In other words, the beast will appear to get along with you at first. And it's only because they want your property. It's only because they want your children. That's it. And so it can start out looking pretty bright. But the ulterior motive will eventually be exposed. Sometimes it's too late. Shimon and Levy were onto it. But of course, they went a little excessively <laughs> into revenge. Right. So, um, and again, last week, we introduced the idea from Genesis 419, the first example of a man boasting about a murder, a killing is also the same man who is the first polygamist, Lamech. It says he took two wives for himself. And again, um, the implication there is there was the not the full agreement that they were for himself. It wasn't one of those covenants where I will love and cherish you, I will take care of you. There's like a mutual thing going on, which is what a covenant is all about. You do this for me and I'll do this for you because it's a relationship, not just a contract. And so he takes these two wives for himself. And this is the guy that sings the weird song about, look at me, I just killed somebody. So you can see the predatory nature of Lamech. And it's the same thing that, that we see in the days of Noah in Genesis 6, 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. There was a violent taking. It's not who the women wanted to marry or be with. It's who the men saw, identified, and took. So we've got a man who doesn't just kill people. He brags about it. This is the one who is our first polygamist. And then we went over their names. I think we, when we left off, we looked at Ada and Zila. If the ideal of the creation, like Yeshua says, the go back to the beginning. In the beginning, he says it was not so. In the beginning, I mean, he had to give divorce as a concession because hearts were hard. But he says in the beginning, it was not so. The ideal creation was of two being one. And then Lamech is the first to break that pattern and take two wives. And Jewish tradition does not see this as a positive example. It's, it's seen as the worst possible thing in terms of breaking the pattern of creation. And so much so that um, one of the last people we hear of as being referred to as the seed of Satan was one of the last uh, Jewish polygamists who was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, from the house of Shammai. And that was, it didn't, it wasn't just because he was a polygamist. It was the, the two houses, Shammai and Hillel, they tended to insult one another anyway, call one another the synagogue of Satan and that sort of thing. And what that means is these are people who are doing particularly awful things in terms of applying the words, the doctrine. There's something wrong with your doctrine when you hear synagogue of Satan or seed of Satan. Because it goes back to the serpent preaching a twisted doctrine. 
here's the word. And then he took it. Yes, you're supposed to be in the image of Elohim. So do this and you'll be just like him. It's a twist, but it works. It often deceives. And so they're, they're synagogue of Satan, seed of Satan is what they would call one another. Uh, and so Lamech, he would kind of be in that category of twisting, um, applying a doctrine improperly. And so when you've got one of the last polygamists in, in Jewish history, at least um, as the orthodoxy emerged out in second, third centuries, they would have been seen as Satan's seed. Of course, Ada, it means ornament or something beautiful. And then Sila means his shadow. And here's what Rashi says used to happen. And it's in his commentary to Genesis 4.19. Such was their practice of the generation of the flood. And I'm interested in this because of the days of Noah. Like, what is this Lamech and his two wives? What are they telling us about the generation of the flood? It says they would have two wives, one for procreation and one for conjugal relations. Her husband would give her to drink a cup of roots, a contraceptive potion concocted from roots so that she would become sterile. She would be adorned like a bride. And her husband would feed her delicacies, while her colleague, the other wife, would be scorned as if she were a widow. This is the situation Job described in the verse. He lets graze the sterile one who will not give birth, but the widow, that is the scorned wife, he does not treat well. Now, I want to remind you of a, a passage in, I believe it's in Revelation, where the harlot says, I will not sit a widow. I will not dwell as a widow. What is she saying? Well, remember, the first wife is the wife of his youth. She is the wife of his covenant. And we're going to look at some scriptures that bear that out. The first wife is the wife of the covenant. But what happens, she becomes the scorned wife. She's treated like a widow where he takes the younger wife and adorns her, gives her delicacies, does wonderful things for her, makes sure she stays beautiful, makes sure she stays in his shadow. And... When she says, I will not sit a widow, she's saying, you know what? That life of fidelity, of faithfulness, of bringing forth fruit in the creation, of being a true mother in the creation, I don't want to do that because I'll be scorned. But if I just want to fix up and look good, then I don't mind being the, the tzila, his shadow, like in the shadow of the beast, catering to the, the sexual appetites of the beast, in this case of, of our Torah portion, catering to the economic, not just sexual appetites, but into the, the economic appetites of the beast, which is also present in Revelation. And so that gives us just a tiny bit of context for I will not sit a widow. I want the good things now. I don't want to bear good fruit as a wife of covenant. I just want to look good and be treated well. So, um, if you'll remember at Mount Sinai, the Israelites were told to take off their adi. Ada is an ornament, something beautiful. The Israelites were told to take off their adi, their ornaments, because they had been ugly. They had committed adultery, which adds another layer to I will not sit a widow, because there's an element to being faithful that feels like widowhood. And so in this case, Tzila would have been the preferred wife. Apparently, if there was some sort of contraceptive potion given to her, it didn't work because she bore children as well. But the, the paradigm here was the second wife or the additional wives would serve the, the sexual desire of the husband. And she was expected to maintain her physical beauty for him alone. 
And so she stayed in his shadow in that sense. The, the first wife, the wife of covenant would have been the functional one, kind of, you might say the breeder, but the one who follows him around to fulfill his desires, she's the one that he is trying to make into his image so that she will do exactly what he wants her to do. And you hear that in Lamech's song. You better listen to me, wives. I'm about to sing you a song about killing somebody. Listen to me. You can hear that, that nature of the beast, even in the song. Malachi 2, 13 through 16 explains this for us. And it, it shows us again how human relationships can picture things going on in spiritual realms. He says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? And here's why. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. You see how the spirit is gone when you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth? So he's using his human relationship. When you deal treacherously with your first wife, the wife of your covenant, this agreement, covenant agreement, this mutual two becoming one. And now she's a little older. She's a little more wrinkly. She's chasing kids around. (laughs) She doesn't look as pretty to your natural eye. But what you're not seeing is the spirit that she represents in your life. And he's saying, when you depart from her, you don't even have a remnant of the spirit left in you because it's reflecting your relationship with the Holy Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so that's that's hard. It's hard to listen to. But I think we can see that the closer we get to Torah, the closer we get to actually understanding the Torah with the power of the Holy Spirit and the covenant relationship that it is, if you're in a marriage where motivation on either side was wrong, entering into the covenant... If there is not repentance and return to this first covenant agreement, I think you'll start to see that marriage being broken apart because that's what the spirit will do. It will check your motivation. And in some cases, I think we're seeing marriages that because the the motivation was completely off, the closer they got to Torah, the more it split the marriage apart. They end up divorcing sometimes. But, you know, with the help of Adonai, hopefully when they remarry, as long as they remarry according to the Torah, that that new relationship will reflect proper motivation and a resolve not to deal treacherously with the wife of your covenant. He says, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. It will affect your spiritual life with your maker. Isaiah 54, 5 says, your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. 
For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So we see here again the pattern where the the wife of one's youth, it's particularly troubling when one rejects the wife of your youth. Um, In this case, it was because of her behavior in the days of Noah. And there, there had to be, you know, justice. But he says, when I sent you away, it wasn't forever. If you will be forsaken and grieved in your spirit at this rejection, then I can regather you. Because if you're forsaken and grieved in spirit, it, it gives us the idea there's repentance here. What, what, what she's done to her husband, she is sorry for. She is left, the husband of her youth, her covenant. And he says, if you will return, if you will seek repentance, then I can gather you back. He says, but this relationship between the males and the females, the husbands and the wives, you can learn something about the days of Noah from those relationships. And like I said, Judaism perceives this first polygamist as a a very dangerous precedent uh, because what a second wife creates is rivalry or third or fourth or fifth, however many wives you want to throw into the mix. It creates rivalry. And that's why I encourage you again to go back to spirit-filled family and look at the breakdown of the words where in the Torah it says, if you take another wife, then here are the requirements. When you read the requirements in Hebrew, you realize it makes it impossible for you to take a second wife. Because the moment you introduce another into the relationship, there's something in this relationship with the first one that must decrease in order to make room for the second. And that's where rivalry comes in. You're decreasing what is owed, not just I'm giving this to you. I don't owe it to you. You do owe it. You owe it to that first wife. You owe that to your husband. You owe them your complete attention. In every sense of those Hebrew words that that describe the relationship. And so a reiteration of that is Leviticus 18.18. It says, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. In other words, they're saying, don't just focus on don't taking a sister as a wife, focus on don't taking a rival as a second wife. Did it happen in scripture? Yes, it did. Did the Torah come down and say, don't do that anymore? Yes, it did. So like Jacob, I don't want to say he got away with it. You know, it it was used regardless. And that's the, the whole story of the Torah is about dysfunctional families, and yet they're still being used. So don't feel bad if like, oh, my family is so dysfunctional when I compare it to the pattern of the Torah. Don't beat yourself up. Just resolve that going forward, you will do everything you can to return to, to faithfulness to that covenant. If it happened to the patriarchs, then it can happen to us. If they made mistakes, we can make mistakes. Um, And the rabbis say in the end, what this man is after, he wants a woman to bear his children, but he also wants somebody to be beautiful. In the end, that's what the wife of his covenant should be. He should always see her as beautiful. And even if she's too busy chasing kids around that she can't just stay in his shadow and cater to his every whim, that's a good thing. Because the first 365 days they're married, his job is to make her happy. He's he's getting the paradigm flipped. When you're single, it's all about making yourself happy, figuring out what you want to do, what you like. And then you get married and now two or one, but they really aren't. They're still two, but they're one. So 
the male more than the female in this sense needs more practice being other oriented. Women are naturally more relation relational. They have to be because of, you know, being the primary responsibility for the children, being that nurturer of the children. But the for the male, because his gifts are in a different area, he has to work a little harder. So for 360, and it's a commandment, not a suggestion. If you skipped your 365 happy days, it's not too late to go back and redo it. Wake up every morning, gentlemen, and ask yourself, what makes her happy? And it might mean you have to talk to her. I think that was the whole idea to get you to talk to her and find out what makes her happy. And most of the time, if you try to make her happy, she's more than glad to make you happy. I know we live in a perverted world. Not everything is going to go according to plan. Depends on who you're married to sometimes. And like I said, you know, where are they in their relationship to the word? But this relationship, again, is, is setting the, the foundation for that husband and wife to begin to minister in the body of Messiah. What they practice at home in terms of respect for one another, love for one another, cherishing that covenant with one another, even when we wake up ugly. In spite of that, if we can always see our spouse as handsome as when we married him or as beautiful as when we married her, and sometimes that means because the natural realm's going to tear that up. But if we keep seeing them with the eyes of the spirit, no matter what they look like on the outside, they will continue to be beautiful and desirable to you. They will be both the ornamented bride and the faithful bride of covenant. They will be the same person. And again, we get that the new Jerusalem coming down, ornamented for her husband, and the two are like a shadow of one another, they're going to be one. There's going to be a marriage there, both ornamented and one being in the image of the other. And, and that's kind of the thing. In, in a relationship, you don't want to create rivals, specifically in marriage, because that's what adultery means. It means to add another. So the wife, the first wife, the companion of his youth symbolizes the Holy Spirit working in a man's life and in his family. And it doesn't fade with age. Proverbs 7, 4 says, say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your intimate friend. So you see that the spirit, um, the parable of the sister, the not just the sister, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, like the shadow the image of me, my intimate friend, but she's also wisdom. Wisdom, chokhmah, it's one of the seven spirits of Adonai. And without the spirit, then that temptation is going to come to take another in order to fulfill the the predatory or the beast-like desires. So who's the real wife? You put them together and you have the real wife, but you're not going to see the first one as beautiful as the second one if you're not seeing her with the eyes of the Holy Spirit. To divide those roles out simply created women as objects, utilitarian objects, one to produce children and one to do, you know, to satisfy the animal desire. I don't know if I want to go through this, but again, the, the story of Dina, it's one of assimilation or an attempted assimilation. Shimon and Levi cut that short. But there's there's turns of phrase here because we're going back to the days of Noah. Yeshua says, for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark 
you can see there the the predator mentality. That's what characterized the days of Noah. As he's building the ark, it was characterized by women being objectified and taken against their will. And you know, if you've you've done any research at all on sex trafficking, not just of women but of children, that the the predators, the sexual predators, taking whomever they see that they want or murdering them. You know, if we look at Lamech, where his nature was to kill, it, it may not be that they take them in sex trafficking, but they don't just take them, they kill them like wild animals. And he says, at that time, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. And it goes on in the Hebrew Matthew, it says, one will be taken, one will be left. This is because the angels at the end of the world will remove the stumbling blocks from the world and will separate the good from the evil. And so if that happens, whereas in the days of Noah, you've got this violence between, well, perpetrated upon the females, upon the weaker, let's just say the weaker, the violence is perpetrated upon the weaker. It might be women, it might be children of any gender, male or female, that can happen. Um, There will be rampant assimilation. So many of our young people now, they don't have clear views of who Adonai is and his rules. They think that the rules of the, the political day are the rules of the universe. And we have to keep saying, no, the Torah defines good and evil. The Torah defines sin. We don't. Just because everybody is doing it doesn't make it right. But without the stumbling blocks there, it's going to be much easier for the righteous to go about their business without being vulnerable like Dina to the predators when they go out. And like we said, because Yaakov delayed the mitzvah, it led to the circumstances that uh, allowed Dina to not just be violated, but something abominable happened to her, to the sister of Zion, to the sister, to the daughter of Jerusalem. And that's why I say, don't give up. If you feel like you're late for your children spiritually, it's better to be there late than never. It's always better to be there late than ever. Just be honest and say, hey, I missed it on this one. I delayed on this. I dragged my feet. I didn't know any better. Most of the time, it's like, I didn't know any better. I would have done better. But as I learn better, I want to do better. And that can be a difficult conversation depending on how old they are. But I think they'll respect the honesty rather than just pretending like certain things didn't happen when clearly they did. Clearly, we left some things out. Maybe clearly we didn't put some protections in place and they suffered for it. Don't beat yourself up. It's like, you know, just figure out what is the way to go and then start walking in it. And if you need to repent to your kids, repent to your kids or your grandkids. Uh, Just do that work. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is after. And so Yeshua, as he's telling them to prepare for this marriage of Jerusalem above and below. He says, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Ruach. You're going to need this uh, because he's going to prepare room for more brothers and sisters coming on a late bus. (laughs) And so his disciples and the apostles, they would need to go out and to prepare. They would need to prepare these additional people for the additional room that was being created for them. Like I said, this is where he reminds him, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know the way where I'm going. 
when he says, you know, the way where I'm going, I can't help but wonder if this is connected to wait in Jerusalem until you've received power on high. And I know what he says here, but where did he actually send them? He sent them to Jerusalem. He says, you know, the way, and they don't think they know the way, but they do know the way they, if you follow the feasts, if you put your feet in Jerusalem for the feasts, you may not exactly understand what you're doing. You may not think you know the way, but Yeshua was saying, you do. You're practicing. You know the way. You know where it began, and you know where it will end. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you know this passage, but let's look at some things in here that, that we're going to come up, again, as it relates to these things. It says, when the day of Shavuot had come, they were all together in one place. And kind of rip out of your mind, they're in an upper room. They're not. That chapter's over. They're in the temple. And one clue there is going to be place. The other clue is going to be house. The whole house, the, the temple, the euphemism for the temple, the metaphor is the house and also hamakon, the place. So they're all together in one place, most likely Solomon's porch. That's where this group liked to gather. Suddenly a noise, like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them. Think of the fire in the shape of the Hebrew letter sheen, because that's what the sheen represents is fire. Distributing themselves. And a tongue rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. So remember, the temple is on the earth below like the spigot. There's blessing that wants to flow out of the heavenly temple, but it can only do it when the earthly temple is in a state of obedience and purity. Yeshua knows this temple is going to be torn down. He's already warned them. He knows they're going to be the temples. So he sends them to the temple in order to be filled with a measure of the Ruach HaKodesh that's going to be necessary for them to become the little movable temples and to go out to the nations. And for those, those blessings, for them to now be that spigot where they can open it up and then the blessings of salvation, redemption, restoration, healing, and all that can begin to be fulfilled in them. Now, there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty deeds of God. And so that makes total sense. If now the disciples are to become the little temples that begin to speak the blessings and the mighty deeds of God to all these nations, then he takes them back to the house, into a house that's fallen into spiritual disrepair. And what does he do? Instead, he fills them with his spirit. And so all humankind was created by Elohim. He desires that all humankind and their original domain, the earth with all its creatures, serve him and recognize him as king over the creation. And what does it say back here? Devout men 
from every nation under heaven. What's under heaven? Earth. Who is called and chosen to be the vehicle for accomplishing this restoration? The 12 tribes. So that it's it's not by accident that Yeshua chose 12 disciples as the foundation on which the apostles would be built, who would also go out and proclaim the, the mighty works of Adonai. It takes us back to the encampments in the wilderness. Remember the four banners that the 12 tribes camped under. They camped under the lion, the bull, the eagle, and then the human being, because remember the human being ruled over them all. By encamping in such a way that the wheel below or the wheels below in the encampment of the Israelites reflects what is in the wheels of the chariot above. And if the wheels below are obedient below, then what they are doing, and again, is opening up the spigot of blessing from the wheels above. If the the job of the wheels above is to perform the will of the Holy One, then the job of the wheels below is to perform the will of the Holy One. And this is how he can send blessings out into the earth. In this case, all the disciples are gathered together in the temple. But as this message begins to go out, you're going to start to see these these wheels of these 12 men representing four sides of the Mishkan, the four sides of the temple. They will begin to scatter all over the earth and to take this message. And through that message, he begins a process of restoration and preparing the way. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.